Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Friday Reporter Podcast. It's a podcast where me, Lisa, the host, interviews journalists and the journalism adjacent about their work. The Friday Reporter Podcast is in partnership with PR Daily. And if you don't know about PR Daily, it is a tremendous uh, resource for communicators like myself and you and and the folks you work with. Uh, PR Daily actually just launched what's called the PR Daily Leadership Network. It's a peer-to-peer brainstorming and networking opportunity for mid-level communicators, uh, access to uh, measurement of SEO, uh, business fluency, presentation training, lots of other opportunities there at prdaily.com. If you're interested in the PR Daily Leadership Network, be sure to mention that you heard about it on the Friday Reporter Podcast to receive $500 off of your membership. Well, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Sometimes you're lucky enough to get to talk to friends that you have known since childhood. So today's guest is my friend and just someone that I've admired for so long in this amazing career she's had. Maris Kreisman is not only the host of the Maris Review, which I'll let her tell us more about, but also the books editor at Vulture. Maris, hi. Lisa, hi. I remember auditioning for Annie Get Your Gun when I was eight. Oh boy. I'm so we've known each other. Maybe like mm-hmm. a sequel to Annie that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> oh no, I don't know about that. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, we've been in the performance space for a while, I guess, you know, if you look back that long. Um, yeah. Annie Get Your Gun. Gosh. Yeah. I have some photographs. I'm not putting them on the internet, but I might send you one. <laughs> Okay, so so let's get into it. Like you have been really doing some remarkable creative things for a long time. And I've admired it so much from back here and stories from home and running into your brothers who are also my great friends. So talk to me a little bit about how you got started. Yeah, I, I started out wanting to be a book editor. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time, we were really told that we should be silent voices in the back and mm-hmm. let the authors do the speaking. And um, that was fine for a number of years. And then I was laid off <laughs> and I decided I wanted to have things in my life that I could not be fired from. Mm-hmm. And um, I started to realize that I liked writing myself. Right. And, um Again, not lucrative at all, but but fulfilling. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about this, um, well, this project that really caught on like wildfire, right? The 90210 project. Will you tell me a little bit about that as my dogs sing to you in the background? I love that. <laughs> um, Slaughterhouse 90210 is a ridiculous name of this blog I started on Tumblr back in the glory days of Tumblr in which I take a still from a TV show and combine it with a quote from a book. And, and it was really just meant to um, show how those two things were more alike than, than some people might think. Mm-hmm. Reading, still relevant. Yeah. <laughs> and did that turn into your first published work? Or was it there? Did. Oh, okay. It yeah, did. that's what I thought. Um, so it was a real like Tumblr coffee table book. How fun though, (laughs) but it caught on like wildfire. I mean, you had droves and droves of people who were like really just fanatically and emphatically following what you were doing, which is just sort of a product of your own creativity. Thank you. 
Thank you. And so um, from there, like how, how do you get something like that published? Like how does, is it from having great connections in the space? Was it, tell me, because the world has changed a lot since then. Like it's been a minute since that all happened. So I'm kind of curious about that time. And then I'd like to talk to you in a little bit about the world today in the publishing space. <laughs> um, for sure, it was a different time. Um, and I knew I had good connections, but I really, I think I waited until I had 100,000 followers on Tumblr. Okay. Which still isn't a ton in terms of percentage of them that you actually need to buy a book. But, but wait a minute, but back then, Maris, that was a huge, fo- I mean, the world is so different today, but 100,000 followers at the time was like, that was a, a really, really big audience. Am I wrong? I mean, I think it really was, right? Um, and so when I hit that threshold, I thought, okay, it's time to call in my contacts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was a great thing to do and then to let go. Like it was sure. very much of a moment. Right. Yeah. Which, and then so from there, you've really, I mean, you really steeped in the publishing space. And what's really neat is that just the other day, I had a conversation with Carrie Flynn, who writes for Axios, who covers media and media deals. And that media, that that definition of media from the time you really got started to today is so different. I mean, she's not just covering the streaming of CNN. She's covering that entire space. And she's also covering the fact that an antitrust judge just recently said that two of the biggest publishing houses cannot come together because that would be not cool, <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it, right? Um, so tell me a little bit about, about what you're doing now in that space, in the publishing space. Yeah. Um, so I'm the books editor at Vulture. Um, and, and that's where I get to um, cover some of the books more in depth that, mm-hmm. that I'm interested in, as well as on my podcast. Like mm-hmm. the, My podcast is just to please myself, basically. So I get to talk to whomever I choose. Um, but in terms of looking at the broader world of book publishing, I, yeah, I've seen I started out in 2000 Mm -hmm. um, in a world in which there was this new company called Amazon uh, that might want to sell books. Mm -hmm. And um, now we're at Amazon's mercy. Mm -hmm. And and, and that was the big issue, I think, with uh, PRH and SNS trying to combine. It's bad enough that these are two enormous companies that they wanted to be a mega company, but it's even worse that Amazon is still so much larger in scale Mm -hmm. that there is no way to, uh, you would have to combine every single book publisher um, and you still wouldn't get to the point where you could like really go head to head with that Amazon. Well, it's so interesting that you bring that up because I have to tell you, Amazon is part of every conversation we're having here in Washington, D.C. too. Uh, not only do they own the Washington Post, uh, they also have just decided that their headquarters is going to be here in the shadows of the Capitol. Um, they are trying to get into the government contracting space. Um, so they're everywhere. They're omnipresent. And um, at some point, I think 
maybe we'll be having conversations about overreaching, right? Um, but what's so interesting about the publishing space too is that Amazon is also in the they are they are people are self publishing on the Amazon platform in addition to the fact that they're selling books they're they're everywhere in your world. They are. And one of the things that is so hard, especially in the self-publishing space, is that it's really the only major player. Like if you want to self-publish and have your book available digitally, you basically have to go through Amazon. And Amazon demands exclusivity um, to get some of the um, promotion that they do for these books. Hmm. So it's a real trap. Like you can't survive without them, but at what cost? Right. And so the whole, the whole world of, I mean, we all love the convenience of having those little brown boxes arrive at our front porch, uh, especially when you've run out of toothpaste. Um, however, like at some point, where is the ability for people to really play in that landscape and be involved? And, I'm so curious about books in general because so many of the people I talk to, Maris, are are political authors, people that, you know, they take the work that they've done. Um, I'll give you like Jim Tankersley, for instance, just recently wrote a book about um, the economy. And um, and he really, what he, what he told me when we had this conversation was that a lot of what he wrote about was the work that he had produced during his time as a journalist and then sort of compiled that into a broader manuscript that then became the book. But everybody comes to this writing space. So put Amazon up on a shelf for a while because we don't need to talk about the bad guys for a minute. <laughs> um, but the process of writing in general, because you work with so many of these authors, it's really different for everyone. Is that right? I think that's right. I think that there are people who absolutely have to write every day and they have a word count that they have to stick to. And then there are some people who can get a book signed up and go away for nine months and uh, return with the full manuscript. It's, um, and it's so subjective what good writing is there. It's, it's easier in nonfiction Mm -hmm. uh, or it should be to at least um, identify whether an author is telling the story properly, getting the facts right. Mm -hmm. You think it's easier for nonfiction? I think it is Um, just because with fiction, it really is just all subjective. Mm -hmm. At least there are facts or there should be facts that you can use in nonfiction to, to buttress your story. And is that because in fiction, you're more at the whim of the publisher in terms of their interest in the story? Yeah, I think, um, it's, it's the kind of thing where if you want to sell a novel to a big publisher, you are basically, it's like dating almost. Like you have to find the editor or you don't, your, your agent probably okay. has to find the editor who like you have chemistry with. Oh, and, wow. and, and it doesn't, it, who can like share your vision for what this book should be. And it's the kind of thing where you either have it or you don't. And it's like lightning in a bottle, right? Yeah. For a lot of these, I mean, it really, because I've, I've, 
I have an, an idea for a book myself that someday I'm going to write. I'm going to publish it on my own blog. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe somebody will read it someday, but it's, that's a whole nother conversation. But, but I'm so curious about that because, you know, there is that whole process that goes into that. And, um, and also too, once the book has been published now, and I, I, I've engaged with you a little bit on this, there is a whole nother now um, world of literature in that even after the book has been published, certainly people do the book tours and they do the kinds of things, but there is also another sort of phenomenon that's happening in books and in publishing in general that's happening online, right? I mean, I have a, I have a 14-year-old daughter who is like emphatically following TikTok and picking off her next series that she's going to read just from this unbelievable space, right? That where people are sort of engaging and getting attention. Will you talk to me a little bit about that and what that's like for people? Yeah. Um, I just published a piece um, last week um, by a journalist named Kelly Donaldson about why Colleen Hoover is the reigning queen of book talk, as we call it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so much of it comes from the fact that she did start out self-published and she did have the capacity to self-promote in a way that has become more and more and more and more important. Mm-hmm. Very few people can be Cormac McCarthy who doesn't give interviews, you know, um, and and for better or for worse, there are great things about that. There's a great community building involved in that. And it's also a full-time job aside from the actual writing. Right. Um, but it's kind of amazing that she has sold millions and millions of copies and that there are young people who go to book talk to talk about her mm-hmm. and you know i hope that, that means that they're going to a bookstore or you know ordering books and um that might open a door to to more book purchases later or, or, you know library same thing i mean I, you know in the era of everything is digital um my 14 year old prefers to look at her books in a hard copy. She likes to go to the bookstore and pick them out. She likes mm-hmm. that whole process and that whole experience. And so, I don't know, as a parent who's really happy just to see her kiddo reading and not on her phone, I guess that's the positive of all of that, right? But so when so as so not only are you book editor at Vulture. Before I have another question, but actually I want to ask you a minute about that. How do you choose these books? Are they do people make recommendations to you? Is it organic? Like What's your process for for picking something and and consuming this book and then sharing your thoughts? Lisa, to be honest, my living room is a mess. My husband really puts up with a lot of different piles kind of (laughs) everywhere. Um, It's a combination of I tend to know publicists now Mm -hmm. and I know the ones who get me. Yeah. And if, if there's somebody who says, oh, you will like this book, I am more likely to look at it for sure. Uh-huh. But then there are books where it's just like the cover. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Sometimes the cover is enough to pull you in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then just 
hearing from other writers, like what they know is in the works that I should be excited about. That that's also another really good. So you receive pitches. You receive quite a bit of pitch, quite a lot of pitches. So many pitches. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really, it's a big piece of, of one of the things that I like to talk about on the podcast because the volume of pitches that everybody gets is just, it's almost like it's unsustainable. You can't even get to all the things that are coming your way. But I, I love your point about it's the people that take the time to know what you care about or know what you like to read or know like this is going to be something Maris is going to want to dig into. Yeah, I think that's, that's so helpful. And yeah, I um, was trying so hard to make it a point to respond to every pitch. And at one point I just, I had to give up um, because I'd be working around the clock. (laughs) How fast does Maris Kreisman read? Not as fast as you might think. It's just that uh, I always make the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll read like a book or two a week. Okay, but not speed reading. More than one like, at a time. More than one at a time. Sometimes, if if I'm reading like a novel and then there's nonfiction, then okay. I want to check out too. That makes sense. Um, but I, I don't want to read something too similar to heart. And then cause you would, cause they can be, you know, come together or be confused. Yeah, That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, is there one particular genre that stands out to you as something that you prefer to read? Like if you weren't having to be producing your own thoughts about books, is there something that stands out that, you know, if you're going, if you're on vacation, what do you pick up? I am very much a fiction person, um, and for better or for worse, the we call the genre literary fiction. I don't think that that is um, the best descriptor, or that there there is um, a lot of inter. What am I trying to say? There's. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, all of the different genres are a lot more fluid okay. than um, a bookstore would like to tell us that right. they are. Right. But um, I'm looking for a book that's written beautifully. That's that's my main thing. I okay. want the writing to sh- shock me. Okay. You also do a lot of freelance work, other pieces, other things that you write that aren't necessarily about books at all, that some of them are about pop fiction or, you know, pop culture or they're about um, activities that are happening in the world, um, things that we're paying attention to. I feel like whenever one of these pops up, it's like, okay, Maris is in my head again, because it's all very relevant to sort of the times and what we're thinking about. Tell me a little bit about that side of your work and, and how those ideas come to you. I mean, are you just, are they coming to you? Or are people pitching you on those? Talk about that a little, if you will. Yeah, they're, they're coming to me mostly. Uh, I was talking to... No, I was listening to a talk with the author Elizabeth McCracken a couple of weeks ago, and she started talking about how she wouldn't have been able to write this very autobiographical novel that she just put out if she hadn't been on Twitter. If she hadn't had the time to develop those ideas and um, the confidence to just put something out into the world. and I very much identify with that. Um, and yeah, so so a lot of these things are just um, 
things that the, the kernels there on Twitter, and then and then it gets bigger. And um, my essay collection is called "I Want to Burn This Place Down." <laughs> and, Very appropriate. Um, I still have to write a lot of it, <laughs> but that's um, but that's so fun, and I think that that is that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, it is about it is about courage, right? I mean, it is about taking that leap and being willing to put yourself out there a little bit and and share your thoughts, knowing, especially in this environment, that you are going to get, it's not even if, you are definitely going to be criticized, and most likely many, many times over. So you have to really have that, I don't give a damn kind of attitude towards it, really a little bit, like I'm putting this out there, and this is how I feel, and if you don't like it, then that's your own problem. For sure, and one of the things the survival skills that has really helped me is muting people on Twitter. <laughs> like just rather than fight with them in my head or tell them why they're wrong, just forget they ever exist. Goodbye. You're erased. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you know, which isn't to say I don't want to have good conversations with people with That's different criticisms, but you know, mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Yeah. No, it's, not it's no, it's, the toxicity level is at as at an all time high, and it's so difficult. And that's why I'm so I admire the work that you do because I do feel like you're really putting some smart things out there that you are saying like this is how I feel about it. But but they're always like I said they're always so insightful and they're always sort of tied into like the news or tied into things that are happening in the world. I'm trying to think of a specific example, I, before we sort of got on the phone, I had read through a lot of the most recent stuff that you had done, and it's fun. Like you're having a good time with it. That's how it can't, comes across to me. Like you're enjoying the the things that you're putting out there i um it turns out that even if i can't speak as clearly as i would like to writing clearly um and without pretension (laughs) um is something that i've come to value more and more that comes through it really does my friend you can tell yeah, it's super appreciated. And so, uh, all right, So, but you're always coming up with a new and fresh and cool idea. So a collection of essays, so that's a, one idea that's coming your, coming our way. What other things can we expect to hear from, from you in the future? And the answer can be maybe nothing yet. I mean, I think that so many of the ideas I hope to – uh, come up with will be part of the essay collection. Okay. That's I can tell you that my bugaboo these days is free speech. Yeah. I thought it was so uncomplicated that, of course, in a free society, we need to all be able to speak our minds. And um, it turns out that it's not that simple. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, thinking about who right now, who free speech protects, it doesn't seem to be the people without power. Right. Um, it doesn't seem to be the authors with books banned in, in public schools. Yeah, good point. Um, and, and so then it becomes, okay, what, what do we value more in free speech? Which is already heresy uh, to to many, many people, but it's like, how about treating everyone with dignity and respect? Right. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Right. Yeah. 
or maybe just staying silent. You know, that's also, that's a big piece about free speech is that you can speak up or you can keep your unpleasant thoughts to yourself. And that's a big piece of it too. It's just, and I, maybe it's especially fresh because there's a lot going on. You and I both spend a little bit of time on Twitter. There's a lot of unhappiness and unkindness happening in that space has been for a long time, but feels like even more so now with the um, ownership switch. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just in general, you know, I mean, I'm in Washington, you're in New York. These are places where nobody holds their tongue. We all speak our minds very frequently and, mm-hmm. and freely. Um, anyway, so when you're not doing all these cool things, you're traveling, I know right now, what is what keeps you busy on the weekends? Like what kinds of fun things are you up to? As you might imagine, and I bet you are too, I, I really am a big karaoke person. And I think that is from our days of musical theater, like <laughs> scratching that itch. Missing that Marilyn Michaels day at the JCC. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I love, I, we have a dog named Busy, B-I-Z-Z-Y. Cute. Um, and she takes up a lot of my time. She's 15 years old. She's a pug. Oh, girl, that's awesome. So, so basically I kind of, to her all day. I get every it. Day. I have two <laughs> rescues that live here now. They Aww. keep me quite busy. I heard, yeah, I heard they're it. frequent on the podcast. They're kind of a they're kind of a new <laughs> thing. The the new one is really noisy. The last one, the, the the earlier one was not quite as noisy. The big one is extra extra noisy. Um, but boy, they're the loves of our lives, aren't they? They're just positive, sure. happy. No bad feedback from those guys. Nope. <laughs> no. I have to tell you, Uh, there's a new show that just opened in New York. I saw it in London last week. I'm telling you this officially on the podcast. I loved this show, and I thought of you when I saw it. It is about what would happen if Juliet went on after Romeo was gone. And it's called And Juliet, and it's set to popular music. And it is screamingly fun and positive and happy, and it just opened in New York last week. So recommendation coming your way for just a fun show. But I saw it in London with my sister uh, and it was just, we just had such a good time with it, but it is, it's all a play on. And so you would get a kick out of it because it's a lot of, you know, reference to Shakespeare and reference to literature and reference to lots of things, but all set to very popular music and popular. So the intertwining like Slaughterhouse 90210, kind of that cool intersection of our worlds um, was very fun. So I'm sending you a recommendation. Ooh, thank you. Um, okay, so as we get to the end of our 30, 30 minutes of conversation, tell me, Maris, who should I talk to next for the podcast? I think you should talk to Stephen Thrasher. He um, wrote a book called, oh, I should have had this on hand, uh, The Viral Underclass. And he is a journalist. He's covered... Um, so many different kinds of things, but his his latest is how do we handle the various viruses that have come to change the way we live? Wow. And and who who gets left out of interesting of the people who are protected from these things. He's great. Awesome. I'm going to tell him you nominated him. 
And I'm going to keep following all the cool things you're doing. And I'm just super proud of you, my friend. And I'm so glad to have shared 30 minutes with you today. Thank you. Thank you for doing the podcast. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.